Uh, who was here last week who remembers what Zach talked about? Guns. <laughs> Guns. Yeah, there we go. Guns, knives, World War II, those kinds of things. It's a good guess. <laughs> what specifically? What doctrine? Yeah, creation and, uh, and evolution and these uh, sorts of things. So he talked about the various theories of creation, different ways of reading uh, Genesis, especially Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, mentioned how our evangelical circle is big enough to hold both young earth creationists and old earth creationists. Uh, and then also... Uh, potentially various nuances of evolution, and he kind of uh, distinguished the difference between macroevolution, that is uh, evolution from one species to another, like monkeys into humans, uh, and then microevolution, which is just evolution within a species, something that's just adapting to its environment. And so he talked about all those things. So if those are things that are super interesting to you and, uh, and, and you weren't here last week, let me high, highly encourage you to go and check out the audio Uh, that's posted online. Uh, And so last week we talked about everything that you want to know about creation, Uh, but this week we're really talking about everything that you need to know about creation and really focusing on God as uh, creator. What does it mean that God is creator? So I want to read this uh, statement from the Westminster Confession of Faith on uh, creation. Uh, It says, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible in the space of six days, and all very good. I think that's a good uh, definition uh, of uh, creation. So God created everything is, uh, is what we kind of talked about uh, last week, uh, and God is the one who does it, uh, which... Uh, which means that he created everything except himself. God created everything that can be created, which means that God created everything except uh, himself. And this idea permeates Scripture. Uh, in fact, there have been a number of theologians, Calvin's one of those, uh, that, uh, that said that all true knowledge of God consists of you knowing him through two different lenses. You know God as both creator and redeemer, Creator and Redeemer. These are the two lenses that, that, uh, that we kind of focus upon uh, God as. So this is foundational to our hope, to our faith, that we understand God as Creator. So let me read a few passages uh, on this from Scripture. I think you should have all of these in your notes. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 33.6, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host Acts 17.24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Acts 4.24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Hebrews 11, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen uh, was not made out of things that are visible. Colossians 1, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In Revelation 4, 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things and by your will they existed and were uh, created. So these passages kind of tell us who created and what was created. And last week, uh, Zach kind of dove into the question of, uh, of when things were created as we kind of looked at what the Bible does and doesn't say about things like the age of the earth. What we want to do this week is really kind of tackle the question. We've looked at who, we've looked at what, we've looked at when a little bit. We want to really dive into the question of why and how. So why does God create? How does God create? And then I want to kind of wrap, wrap it up by ask, asking the question, why is this important? Why is it important that we spend an entire week just wrestling through something that uh, if you're coming into this room as a, as a believer, uh, you already recognize this. You already understand that God is uh, the creator. So why is it important for us to really peel back some of the layers here and to unravel uh, this particular doctrine? And so that's what we want to do this morning. Why does God create? How does God create? And then why is this essential? Why is this important for us? 
and uh, for our faith and, uh, and hope. So begin with the question, why does God create? If I ask you, why does God create, how would you respond? To glorify his name. Great. Perfect answer. I don't know that you could do much better than that. Why does he do anything? Why does God do anything? His ultimate end of all things is always going to be his glory. Tim gave a definition a few weeks back. Uh, I don't remember the whole thing, but it had the word splendorous in it, which is fun. I don't know if that's an actual word, but Tim used it as a word, and, uh, and so uh, it's fun. But uh, this is kind of the definition that he gave of God's glory. It's something like the manifest brilliance of God. If God were a sun, S-U-N, if God were a sun, then his glory is kind of like the light and the heat that emanates from the sun. It's not the sun itself, but it's the manifestation of the sun. That's what God's glory is. It's the public display, display of his intrinsic worth and beauty and perfection. That's what God's glory is. And this is why God creates. We get this idea from the scripture itself, and then we also get it from an implication of other scriptures. And so a few places we see this explicitly said in scripture that God creates for his glory. Isaiah 43, 7, it says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Revelation 4, 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. In other words, God's creation is what makes him worthy of glory and honor. And Psalm 19, 11, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So there are a number of places in Scripture where it's explicitly told to us that God creates for his glory. But not only do we get it from these places where it is explicitly mentioned, but there are also, uh, this is an idea that we also get by implication from a number of other places in, uh, in Scripture. Really, if you're looking at it from the kind of the whole counsel of Scripture, our understanding of God's motives is not just going to flow from a few specific explicit texts that talk about God's motivations, but hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of other texts that uh, implicitly talk about God's motives and purposes and pleasures. Ephesians 1.11, we preached through this uh, months ago. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Isaiah 48, 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we see this common thread running throughout all of Scripture that everything God's uh, doing has an ultimate end, has an ultimate sort of destination or desire, a motivation. There's always, uh, although there are diverse motivations, there are probably uh, dozens upon dozens of different motivations that God has in everything that he's doing. There is one chief end, and that is his own uh, glory. The, all of God's other motivations kind of move in this direction of God's ultimate motivation, which is to glorify himself. And this is really good news for us, this is really good news for us that God seeks to glorify himself because as guys like Jonathan Edwards and uh, a number of others have uh, articulated that, uh, that God's uh, glory and our joy are not incompatible. Rather, as uh, John Piper has said, that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. That, that you think of your desire for joy, your desire for happiness, your desire for contentment, all of these sorts of things, and God's desire for glory. They're not at odds. They're not in contradiction. Uh, that, in fact, the more that we enjoy God, the more that he gets glory. And so it's good news for us that God is chiefly concerned with his glory because that means he's also concerned with your joy. Those things aren't uh, at odd. at odds. So, that, uh, that brings up the question, though. You might ask uh, the question, does that mean that God needed to create? So if God does everything for his glory, and if the, the universe is the demonstration or the display of his glory, did God need to create uh, in order to display his glory? That's a conclusion that you might kind of mistakenly uh, infer uh, or uh, imply. You'll sometimes hear uh, some well-meaning parents or pastors say something like uh, that, that God was lonely. The reason that God created was because he was lonely. And although that might be very well-meaning, it's also very misleading 
uh, because that is not uh, the picture uh, that we see in Scripture. God didn't need to create. God didn't need to create others in order to love. Why not? He is love, yeah, and he experiences love already, right? This is part of the, the, uh, the reason that we spent so much time talking about Trinitarianism is because uh, our understanding of Trinitarianism is going to bleed over into these other things. God doesn't need to create something to love outside of himself because God can love uh, within himself uh, because he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and so they can love uh, each other. And so a lot of our sort of Americanized uh, depictions of God are really more just depictions of ourselves. We think if I were in eternity past and I didn't have any other people to play with, I would be super bored. I would be super lonely. And so I would, uh, I would create out of that deficiency in myself. But that's not how God is. God doesn't have any deficiency. God doesn't have any boredom. God doesn't have any loneliness these sorts of things. God didn't need a bunch of friends to play with. That's not the reason that God uh, creates. And, uh, and so we, we can tell that for a, a few reasons. So, so first off, I think that kind of idea, first, it, it only comes from an extrovert. If you're an introvert, you don't think, man, I'd love to create people to play with. You're fine just being by yourself, right? And so uh, I've joked with Zach before, like his, uh, his hell is my heaven, right? <laughs> like when he wants to, when he is super down, uh, and, uh, and super, like, fatigued, he wants to hang out, right? When I'm super f- fatigued, I want to hang Zach. Like, I don't want to hang out. And, uh, and so, so, first off, that's kind of an extrovert idea, uh, understanding of God and, uh, and who he is. Second, God has never been lonely. Again, this idea of uh, God's eternal happiness within uh, his Trinitarian nature he doesn't experience loneliness or deficiency or depression or despair or any of these sorts of things. This is part of what we meant whenever we were talking about the uh, impassibility of God a few weeks back. So go back and uh, listen to that. God experiences something like emotion or feelings, but not in the way that we do. And that's an even a misleading thing. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen uh, to that audio. Again, we can't remake God in our own image as if he is like us He's triune and we are not, and thus we are dependent. Uh, And thus we are dependent on others for community and intimacy and love, but God is not. He didn't have to create. There's no limitation or restriction in him that demanded that he do so. He was free to create or not create, and yet it pleased him to do so. And uh, and so I found this quote by Jonathan Edwards to be really interesting. He He says, "'Tis no argument of the emptiness or deficiency of a fountain that it is inclined to overflow. Tis no argument of the emptiness or deficiency of a fountain that it is inclined to, flow, to overflow. The greater the fountain, the greater the flow. And God, God is the greatest of all founts. And so he is overflowing in creation. That's the idea. So why did God create? Because of his good pleasure and desire to demonstrate his uh, glory. That's the reason uh, for all things. That's the reason that he creates. So that's, so that's why he creates. What about how he creates? There's a number of ways that we could look at this. If someone were to ask you, how does God create? There, there are a number of ways that you could answer the question. First, you could uh, talk about the fact that he creates by his word. He speaks things into uh, being, which is certainly fascinating. Consider how that corresponds even uh, to Jesus' own ministry and the way that Jesus calms the storm. How does he calm the storm? By rebuking it, by speaking to it. How does he raise Lazarus from the dead? By speaking uh, to it. There is this uh, interesting overlap there uh, where uh, God creates by means of speech. In fact, Jesus is called in John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, all right? Jesus himself is called the Word of God. So, uh, so that's one way that you can answer the question, how does God create? He creates by his Word. Another way that you could answer the question is you could talk about the Trinitarian nature of his creation. We'll talk about that in uh, a moment, that he creates uh, through his Son and by his Spirit, that God's uh, Trinity is always involved in creation. It's not just the Father who is the Creator, but the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the triune God is the Creator. But a third way that you could answer the question uh, is that he creates ek uh, nihilo, which is a, a Latin phrase that means from nothing, from nothing. God creates out of nothing. There's a number of passages that talk about this. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So the question is, beginning of what? 
In the beginning, the beginning of what? The answer is everything that has a beginning. In the beginning of everything that has a beginning and what has a beginning, everything except for God. Everything but God. God alone has no beginning, so God alone is uncreated. He is creator rather than created. That's a distinction that we're going to look at uh, in a few moments. That God alone is the creator. Everything else is created. Everything else has a beginning except for God. So in the beginning, the beginning of all things that have a beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created them, ek nihilo, from nothing. John 1, 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made. Nothing was made that was not made through Jesus, and nothing or no thing exists except all things and God himself. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Again, notice the all things. Nothing existed prior to creation. There was no eternal matter that God kind of manipulates into creation. It's not like there was some sort of cosmic Play-Doh that God molds and forms into creation. No, God speaks all things into being. He creates ek nihilo. He creates from nothing. Again, we'll get into why this is really important here in a moment. Uh, Revelation 4.11, we've read it a couple of times, but just to give it to you again. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In Romans 4.17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So he calls into existence that which doesn't even exist. He forms all things out of nothing. This is really a fascinating, especially as it stands out in stark contrast. If you were to, uh, to be reading some of the other religions of the ancient or modern world, occasionally you might get a spam email from like a crazy uncle or something like that. And it says that they just read this article or they just read this book about how Christianity just borrowed from Babylonian or Assyrian creation myths. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen something like this. I don't know if you have that kind of crazy uncle. Uh, But some of us do. Some of us have experienced this where we get this sort of spam or whatever it might be. And the claim is that Christianity just basically is is a carbon copy of these other creation accounts from the the ancient uh, Near East. Uh, And so you'll hear uh, these really technical sounding terms like the Enuma Elish or the Epic of Gilgamesh, which kind of sounds like the villain from the Smurfs. Uh, Does anybody remember what his name actually was? Gargamel, there you go. And, uh, And so you'll hear these sort of fancy things. These are... These, uh, these epic Babylonian myths. And, uh, and so surely Christianity is just another one of these. It just fits within these sort of pantheons of all these other creation myths. Uh, but what's really interesting is not only should these, the presence of these stories not disturb us, they actually can help edify us and encourage us because there is a very strong uh, discord that exists between these other ancient Near Eastern myths and uh, the creation account of Scripture. And, uh, and so what we see in, uh, in these sorts of, uh, of things, by, by the way, the, the idea that the authors of the Old Testament simply borrowed from other religions, uh, that, that's been debunked by, uh, by serious scholarship. And, uh, and so even most uh, secular uh, most secular scholars wouldn't uh, lean upon uh, that sort of idea. In fact, what you find is the overlaps that exist between uh, the ancient Near Eastern accounts of floods and creation and that kind of stuff and, uh, and the Christian account, there is some degree of overlap. But what we've found, the more that we've studied it, is that that overlap is not Christianity borrowing those other uh, myths. It's, in fact, Christianity engaging, confronting those other myths, using some of the same language as a polemic, as an argument against it. In other words, to say, okay, you have this, this myth about Baal, 
or you have this myth about uh, any of these other sort of uh, gods of the Canaanites, the Babylonians, or the Assyrians, or whatever it might be, let me use some of the similar language, but to show you Yahweh's supremacy over uh, those uh, sorts of things. So Christianity does use some of the same language as the, the pagan myths, but the reason that it does it is in order to engage and to confront those myths. The same way that, uh, that whenever God judges Egypt, how does he do, do it? Yeah, he, he judges their very gods. And so the, the, the uh, Egyptians, uh, uh, they worshipped uh, the sun. And so there is one of the plagues where the sun goes completely dark. Uh, they, they worship the firstborn. There is a, uh, a destruction of the firstborn. And on and on we could go with all of the different plagues. All of them correspond to different Egyptian gods. Uh, in other words, uh, uh, Yahweh is showing his supremacy in his judgments. In the same way, uh, in the Bible, we see that Yahweh is showing his supremacy over these other uh, pagan gods and so forth. So anyway, back to how ancient Near uh, Eastern myths not only hinder, not only don't hinder our trust in Scripture, but can actually bolster it. Uh, the reason is because the differences between the Babylonian myths and the Genesis account are so striking. Only in Judaism, only in ancient Judaism, do we see this strong division between Creator and creation. Only in Judaism, uh, the roots of Christianity, do we see this strong division that exists between Creator and uh, creation. What's interesting, if you read the Epic of Gilgamesh or Enuma Elish or any of the other uh, ancient Babylonian or Assyrian or Canaanite uh, myths, what you'll find is that creation in all of these accounts, every single one of them where there is kind of a, a cosmology or an account of the creation of the world that's kind of worked out uh, in, uh, in their myths, every single one of them, creation is kind of going to be an overflow it's almost as if a god kind of uh, pricks his finger and some of the blood drops down, and that's what becomes creation. In fact, there's one account where uh, a god spits, and his uh, spit is what becomes creation. He then takes that spit, and he molds it, and he shapes it into creation. That's what we see in all of these other accounts. Or a god uh, will die uh, that God that dies, his body kind of decomposes, and that decomposing body is formed by another God into creation. That's what we see in all of these other ancient Near Eastern uh, myths is the idea that, that creation and creator are kind of linked somehow. Does that make sense? There's the, the creation is a part of the creator. Only in Judaism do you see this strong division between creator and, uh, and creation and, uh, and so only in Judaism do we see creation ek nihilo, out of nothing, because only in creation do you have a creator who is truly transcendent and distinct from his creation. Thus, for, uh, for ancient Judaism and for uh, Christianity, for you to mingle together creator with creation is the height of blasphemy, which is why you'll get statements like in Romans chapter 1 that we'll uh, preach through starting in January. Romans 1, 24 through 25. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So for us to worship creation is the height of blasphemy. And yet that's what we see in all of these other ancient Near Eastern myths that creator and creation kind of bleed over into each other. They're intermingled to some degree. And only in Judaism, only in, uh, in Genesis, only in uh, the biblical account do you see this strong division such that there is no overlap between creator and, uh, and creation. Uh, and so, in fact, according to Romans uh, 125, you could say that every view of creation ultimately boils down uh, to uh, two opposite views. You either worship creation or you worship the creator. You worship some aspect of creation. You worship some creator, uh, creature, or you worship the uh, creator. And so this has, been, this has been called kind of the idea of oneism versus uh, twoism. Oneism versus twoism. And so oneism is the idea that everything is one sphere, 
Twoism is the idea that everything is kind of two-sphere. And so you have both the creator and creation in this sphere. Twoism, you have creator and then you have creation in this sphere. This is ancient Judaism. This is Christianity. This is uh, paganism, as we'll uh, talk about. And so everything kind of boils down to one of these two lenses. Oneism is this ancient paganism that we see not only in uh, ancient mythologies and so forth, but we see it in modern New Age spirituality, things like uh, Oprah or Rob Bell. Uh, This is uh, why we can, uh, in a pagan sort of idea, we can worship anything. You can worship food, you can worship sports, you can worship television, you can worship celebrities. Uh, the mall is a temple in this sort of idea of, of consumerism, and, uh, and on and on you could uh, go with this idea. One of the consequences of this, uh, it, this sort of idea, is it makes judgment impossible. And so for us, this is part of why in our culture today the idea of judging each other is, uh, is so antithetical to what we believe to be a virtue. It, why? Because who are you to judge me? We're within the same circle. Right? Only in this twoism sort of idea do you get the idea, well, there is another circle, and that circle can then enforce judgment upon uh, the, I just noticed this, I have no idea what that even says, but I didn't, I didn't draw that, whatever that is. <laughs> and, uh, and so nothing stands outside this circle, so nothing can speak into it and stand in judgment uh, over it. Only in, in uh, Christianity do we get the idea that, uh, that creation is both distinct from and yet also dependent upon its creator. Those are the, the two aspects, the two nuances that we need to, to, to hold together, that creation is distinct from and also dependent upon its, uh, its creator. And so there should be some, uh, some little drawings uh, on your handout that you should be able to see there. And so let me walk through what those are, and then we'll explain them a little bit. The first one is trying to express that idea of creation being distinct from and yet dependent upon uh, God, right? So you see a circle there that says God. You see another circle that says creation. And then you have an arrow pointing down to it. In other words, uh, that God is holding together the creation. So that's the idea. Distinction, the two circles, the arrow expressing the idea of dependence. The second one, you have uh, just a circle that just says the universe. Uh, That's uh, basically just materialism, the idea that there is no God. The second one is just a circle that just says God. There is no creation or anything else. This is just the idea of like pantheism. Again, we'll explain all of these. Uh, The next one where there's God and the universe, but there is no uh, relation between the two, and they both just kind of continue on uh, in this direction. That's kind of the idea of dualism. And then lastly, there's God and creation, and there's no uh, relationship between them uh, at all, and that's uh, what we call deism. So let's kind of walk through some of those. First off, uh, materialism. Materialism is just the idea there is no God. Matter, nature is all there is. So there is no creator. There is only creation. This is the, the most secular of, uh, of theories, and this kind of leads to even like political Marxism is based upon the idea uh, of uh, materialism, that the material world is all there is. And then you have pantheism. Pantheism, uh, the, the Greek uh, prefix pan means all or everything, uh, theism, God. Everything is God or everything is a part of God. Uh, there's also a term panentheism, which means that God is in everything. This is a, a, a serious sort of heterodox belief system, but it's also kind of uh, the funniest and so if you, you can go on YouTube literally uh, today and you can watch videos of people crying on YouTube because a tree has been cut down because that tree was their God. And, uh, and so they worshiped that tree. They loved that tree. Have you ever seen Avatar? Avatar, the whole idea of Avatar is pantheism. A major premise of the movie is that God is a part of all of us. We ourselves are a part of God, so they greet each other uh, by... Uh, by saying that we see the God in each of you. That's kind of the idea there, which is, by the way, what the word uh, namaste means. If you ever heard the word namaste, I bow to the divine in you. That's the idea of avatar. Pocahontas. You see Pocahontas? 
right? That's a sweet movie, right? And then there's lyrics like, the rainstorm and the river are my brothers, the heron and the otter are my friends, and we are all connected to each other in a circle, in a hoop that never ends. I'm not saying you can't watch Avatar or Pocahontas. I'm just simply saying that the idea, the underlying idea behind them, the underlying theology behind them is this idea of pantheism, that we're all corrected, it, it, connected. It's this one-ism, sort of pagan spirituality that creator and creation are intermingled together. They overlap uh, together. And, uh, and so the distinction is, uh, is going to be blurred between creator and, uh, and creation, if not blotted out completely in, uh, in pantheism. Then you have dualism, which is just the idea of kind of an eternal existence of both God and creation. You have a f- spiritual and a physical big part of uh, Greco-Roman philosophy, uh, and uh, it's kind of like the force in Star Wars. You know, you have the, uh, the, the, the good side of the force, the light, and then you have the dark, and, uh, and so that's kind of the idea uh, existing sort of side by side into eternity. That's the idea of dualism. Then you have deism. Uh, deism is the idea that God is just a kind of a cosmic clockmaker, he created the world, but he has no relationship with the world or very little interaction with the world uh, after he set it into motion. This is what most of the founding fathers of America were. They weren't actually Christian in their beliefs. They were more deistic. They believed that God created the world. They'll speak of a creator. But then he just kind of sets it in motion. He creates the clock, and then, uh, and then he doesn't have anything else to do with it. And, uh, and so uh, in response to that, we see things like Colossians 1.17 which says that in him all things hold together. Uh, and that's a perfect tense in the Greek. They, they are continually, uh, being, or, or they're, they're held together in the past with a, an ongoing present implication. Hebrews 1.3, that, uh, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So it's not just that God created, it's that he also sustains the world. So the creation is distinct from and yet also dependent upon uh, its uh, creator. And so in order to be orthodox, we need to, uh, in, in order for our worship to really flourish, we need to maintain both this idea of distinction. We are not God. God is not a part of us. We're not a part of God. We're, we don't believe in this, but we're also not deistic or dualistic. Uh, we believe that there is a dependence that we have upon creation or, or, or upon our creator that every breath he sustains, that he holds all things together by the word of his power, that in him all things hold uh, together. So if they're not distinct, if creation and creator are not distinct, then we blend ourselves into sort of pantheism. And if they're not dependent, then we kind of find ourselves moving towards dualism or uh, deism. So that's the first part. How does God create? He creates ek nihilo. He creates out of nothing such that there is this divide that exists between creator and creation. The second way that we can look at that is that he creates trinitarianly, if that, uh, if that is a word. Uh, when we speak of God creating, we don't just mean the Father. We mean the F- Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Each is involved. In Genesis 1, 1 through 3, we see reference to the Father, the Spirit, and the Word. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are each involved in this act of creation. And so what we see throughout Scripture is that creation is yeah, and these, uh, these uh, prepositions are important. The creation is from the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. From the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. From the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. John 1, 3, all things were made through, speaking of the Word, that is the Son, Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So through the Son, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things are, uh, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Colossians 1, 16, for by or in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Hebrews 1, 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So creation is from the Father, it's through the Son, and then by the Spirit. Genesis 1, 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit's right there in Genesis chapter 1. 
Or Psalm 104.30, when you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. Job 33.4, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are each involved in, uh, in the work of uh, creation. And so uh, we have uh, a little bit of time left. I want to really spend the bulk of our time uh, that's left just really working through why is this important? We've talked about uh, how does God create. Uh, we've talked about why he creates. He creates for his glory. We've talked about how he creates. He creates uh, ec nihilo. Uh, we, he creates by his word. He creates trinitarianly. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved. But uh, I want to end by just talking about why is this important? Why do we spend an entire week on something that we, every one of us in this room probably already comes to the table believing we already believe that God is creator, so why are we wrestling through this? What are the implications of our theology as it relates to our doxology, that is our praise? We've talked about before, we talk about it often, that our theology is a ceiling for our worship and for our response to who God is. So how should this particular thing sort of raise the ceiling? I almost said raise the roof, but I won't. How, how should it raise the ceiling for our uh, affections for God and our ability to respond uh, to Him? The, the idea is kind of this, this sort of idea. Imagine, if you will, that you get a, an anonymous donation. You just get some sort of cashier's check or something like that in the mail for you know, $5 million. I know everyone in this room would uh, have their life situation changed uh, to a great degree uh, by getting a check for $5 million. So you imagine you get it, and it's completely anonymous, right? Well, then, obviously, you're going to be grateful to the Lord and that kind of stuff, but you don't have anyone to actually express it to. Now, imagine the difference if, if someone in this room you knew personally handed you a check for $5 million, all right, and assume that you believe that they can actually cover it uh, and it's not going to bounce. Um, but uh, what is going to be your response to them? You, you'll show gratitude, right? You'll show deference. You'll show appreciation and love and so forth. And so the more that we understand what God has done, the higher our capacity to respond to him in gratitude is. If we don't understand these things about him, we can't give him the praise and the glory and the honor that he is deserving of. It's like that anonymous donation. We don't know what to do with our gratitude. And so, um, so I want to talk about these implications the implications, why is this important, the implications of our theology, especially in this area as it relates to our uh, worship. And so the first one is that God did not create the world out of some deficiency in himself. We talked about this before. God did not create the world out of some deficiency in, his, in himself. He created it to display his glory or to display his love. If you were to read Psalm 136, it's the one where over and over he says, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And there's another line, and then it says, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And then there's another line, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. All of these things that God has done are a demonstration of his chesed, his steadfast love, his loyal love, his faithful, unending kindness toward his people. Um, and, uh, and so... God created the world to display his glory, to display his love, to display his other attributes, like in Romans 1 where it talks about uh, his attributes uh, as a people and praise for his son. So he was not needy or insufficient. He was not needy or insufficient, and he is not needy or insufficient. So this should humble us. It should humble us to recognize that God did not create the world out of some deficiency in himself. Psalm 144 says, who are we that God would consider us at all, much less set his love upon us, set his steadfast love upon us, that we're a vapor, we're dust, and yet he loves us and he redeems us from our slavery to sin. And so that's the first implication leading to worship, that we can't worship God correctly if we think that he created us out of some deficiency in himself. We don't understand him correctly then, and so therefore our praise gets distorted. And so that's an implication leading to our worship. The more that we recognize God didn't have to do these things, but he did them. Why did he do them? Because he's glorious and he's good and he's loving. Not because we're lovely, not because we're lovable, but simply out of grace. Second, that God is no way dependent upon his creation. 
He's not served by us like the ancient Near Eastern gods were served by their worshipers. Uh, the, the polemic, the, the argument against the Canaanite gods over and over in the, uh, uh, the prophetic literature in particular was this uh, sort of idea, you, they can't do anything. Why are you worshiping this God who literally can't do anything? One of my favorite, one, uh, favorite examples of this is, uh, is, I think it's in Isaiah, uh, where it's talking about, don't you recognize the irony of this situation that you cut down a tree, you were the one who cut down the tree, and you took this piece of wood and you molded it, you formed it into an idol, and then the rest of it, the scraps, you took and you burned uh, a fire and you cooked your food over it. Don't you recognize the irony of this? You're the one who made this. So why are you worshiping something that you make? Worship should always go from uh, the creation to the creator, not from the creator down to the creation. There's the irony uh, there. And so the uh, sort of uh, argument uh, against the, uh, the Canaanite gods was that they can't do anything. They, didn't, they had mouths, but they couldn't speak. They have feet, but they can't walk. They have eyes, but they can't see. Uh, and so, again, the, the prophets went so far as to mock those who make idols for not seeing the irony of depending on something that uh, you made to help you. The maker helps what he has made, not vice versa. Psalm 50, verses 9 through 12 I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God is not dependent upon his creatures. We serve him, but he's not served uh, in the way that ancient Near Eastern gods. He doesn't need our service. Acts 17 24 through 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So this too should humble us, uh, but it can be disturbing, especially if uh, some of us who have kind of a residue of legalism in our hearts who thinks that, uh, think that somehow if I just do more, if I serve God more, somehow I will merit his love uh, or grace uh, to not be needed as freeing because it means that he simply loves us freely. He doesn't love us because we're doing something for him. He doesn't love us because of what we give to him. He loves us simply because he is loving, and he is uh, love. He's not a child or a pet or even a spouse whose love is somehow birthed out of neediness. There's some degree of codependence. Every example that we have of human love probably has a, an intermingling of codependence. Probably the closest that we can get is uh, as parents with our children. That's probably the purest form of love that we can uh, experience. And even that, though, uh, there's a sense in which my day can be ruined if, uh, if Larkin doesn't uh, smile whenever I want her to or she doesn't respond back when I say I love you uh, or whatever it might be that uh, in, some, in some sense that can uh, disturb me. And, uh, and so yet God's love is completely free. He doesn't need uh, anything from us. He's in no way dependent upon his uh, creation. Third, that God has ownership over all things. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This changes the way that we should think about work, the way that we should think about marriage, money, leisure, everything else. To paraphrase a, a theologian, there is not a single square inch of creation over which God doesn't scream, mine. Every single thing, because God is creator and because of this division here that exists where the creator is over all of creation. Everything in creation uh, is his. And so we don't have ownership over anything. We have stewardship uh, over it. And so that should change the way that we think about uh, all things. That should have implications for the way that we think about things like sexuality in light of our modern culture and its attempt to kind of redefine what sexuality is. We don't have an opportunity if this were correct, then we could. We can redefine whatever we want because we're within the same circle of all things. There's nothing beyond us or above us or over us or whatever it might be. But if this is the correct way to understand uh, the world and our worldview, uh, then only God, only that which is outside of creation can speak into the design uh, for creation. 
Uh, so we don't have the right to rethink or to reimagine what is and is not pleasing to God. He's already revealed those things. So that's the third implication, that God has ownership over all things. Fourth, God has absolute rights over creation and can do whatever he wants with what he has made. God has absolute rights over creation and can do whatever he wants with what he has made. Isaiah 45, 9 through 12. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. God has absolute rights over creation. So we don't think it's weird if we were to meet a, uh, a potter and, uh, and, and we went to his uh, pottery shop and there were broken shards in the corner. We said, what are those? And he said, well, that one wasn't uh, up to my uh, standards and so I threw it away. Uh, we don't think that's weird, right? We don't call the people for the ethical treatment of pots or something like that. And, uh, and turn this guy into the police. Why? Because it's a pot. He can do whatever he wants with it. But for some reason, we think, well, yeah, we have more value than a pot, though, so God can't do whatever he wants with us. And that breaks down the analogy that God is making. In fact, the distance between a pot and the potter, like actual, uh, an actual pot, a uh, physical pot, and uh, a human potter, let's say it's this much, and this is a, a, a very great distance, uh, but the, the, the distance between God and his everything that he creates, including humans, is vastly greater than that. So if a potter has rights over a pot, how much more rights does God have over his uh, creation? Which is why he can say things like in Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Or Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and uh, all deeps. Uh, so in other words, again, this idea that you are a dust, you are dust, you are vapor, you are a grasshopper. As Americans, we love the idea. We want to assert our rights. We want to, uh, to stand for our rights. But as creatures, we have no inalienable rights from our Creator. He can do with us as He pleases, and all that He pleases is by def- definition right and good. Anything that God does with His creation is by its very definition right and good good. So as long as we kind of fail to maintain this fundamental divide between God and man, that he is unlike us. Remember, Zach talked a few weeks ago uh, about the fact that most of our sin boils down to the idea that we think that God is like us. He's more like us than he actually is. We kind of remake him into uh, our own image. We think that he's just kind of like a superhuman. He's like Superman or something like that. He's really, really great, uh, but not the definition of great itself. And, uh, and so as long as we fail to maintain this divide between God and man, uh, we kind of stumble into idolatry and uh, pride and uh, presumption. And, and so biblically, the picture is that we are worms. We're even kind of less than, uh, than worms. And, uh, and then fifth implication that should lead us to greater uh, worship is that God alone is worthy of all glory and honor and splendor and uh, delight. God alone is worthy of all glory and honor and splendor and delight. So even if we delight in other things, that delight should just be a reflection that goes back to God. Even if other things are worthy of honor, then the, uh, that honor, though, should just be a reflection that goes back to, uh, upon God. So the ultimate uh, manifestation of glory and honor uh, and, uh, uh, and splendor and delight and all of these things should ultimately rise up uh, to God. Everything else is just kind of a, a rest stop along the way as we, uh, as we delight in other things. It's a rest stop for our uh, our delight to raise uh, to rise even higher. Revelation four eleven again, we've read it a few times. But worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, and honor, and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So those are the five implications that I think if we really grasp the meaning here of this this idea that that creation is distinct from yet dependent upon God, if we really can grasp what's going on there 
uh, and all of the implications uh, of it, then I think it will uh, raise our affections and our worship of God as we recognize God did not need to create the world out of some deficiency in himself. God is in no way dependent upon his creatures or creation. God has ownership over all things. God has absolute rights over all things and can do whatever he wants with what he has made and that God alone is worthy of all glory and honor and splendor and, uh, and delight. So I'm going to pray for us, and, uh, and then we will be dismissed. If you uh, are serving uh, in uh, preschool, this would be a really good time uh, after I pray for you to make your way out and head on over there so you can get ready. Uh, and then if you have uh, kids that are in elementary, if you could go and pick them up before mingling. Uh, and then once we dismiss, if you have questions, you want to stick around, uh, I'll be up at the front. I think Zach will probably jump up here at least for a moment and happy to uh, stick around and answer any questions or talk about uh, any of this or anything else. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for this morning, an opportunity for us to, uh, to th- be reminded of something that uh, probably every one of us in this room already know, that you are a creator that you created all things, that you did so by your word, that you did so ek nihilo, from nothing. You did so through the Son and by the Spirit. And, uh, and so uh, as a result of that, uh, you are worthy of all glory and honor. You have ownership over all things. You can do with all things as you please, and whatever you please is good and right by definition. And so I pray that our hearts would rest in that. I pray that you would... Uh, Help us, Lord, to delight in these truths and that it might raise our affections for you and affect our appreciation and uh, affect our stewardship, the way that we think of money, the way that we think of leisure, the way that we think of work, the way that we think of all things, Lord, might be uh, filtered through this sort of idea uh, of of you as a creator, as kind of a, a foundation of our hope, Lord. Not only are you our Redeemer, but you are our Creator and worthy of all glory and honor. And so uh, I pray as we go forth from here that you would uh, begin to soften our hearts, give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we consider your word, as, uh, as Zach proclaims it to us, as we uh, respond to you in worship, that, uh, that even some of the things that we've talked about today might raise our affections for you. And as we sing along with Tim, Uh, that you would form us into the image of your Son as we reflect upon what you have done for us and who you are. And so uh, we love you. We want to love you more. We pray for our little church, Lord. We ask that more and more we might uh, experience victory as we seek to make disciples and uh, and push back darkness and uh, and see your kingdom come here in McKinney, Lord. And so help us to be faithful, we ask, because you're a good Father and you give good gifts. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.